0: Thanks for tuning in to listen to the Drosh for this week's Parsha reading. Stay tuned after the Drosh for details on how to stay in touch with this ministry and keep up with all of our content. I hope you enjoy the message. My name is Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. I'm leaning on the port side. I guess it'd be the starboard side. <laughs> oh, everybody's over here. <laughs> In my statutes you will walk. And if you walk in them, God says at the beginning of this portion, you'll have abundance, shalom, safety, victory, fruitfulness, to be cared for, provided for. God will be among us. We'll be free. It's basically a summary of Vayikra 26, that first portion. We do not walk in them he is speaking to Israel here but he says, if not it's almost exactly the opposite happens but it's almost as if it's multiplied by about three the punishments, the curse that comes on Israel for not keeping the Torah is far weightier at least in the number of words, let me put it that way and certainly it's sort of ominous and the blessings, and uh, that did not escape my notice. It never has. It's it's uh, it's always kind of made me think um, that the the consequences of not walking according to His will are far worse uh, than one might think. It doesn't detract from the blessings at all, um, but I think the kind of the point of it is is To redirect our hearts back toward God. It's a double opposite. It's a triple opposite. The portion we read, however, zooms in or narrows down on vows and valuations. That's what our one-third portion was about. It's the dedication of a person or a thing. A person, a house, or a field. Those are the specific things that are brought up. To the service of the mikdash. What I want to point out is, it is not slavery, by any means. It says, (laughs) A vow, of valuation of a soul for Yevah. That value is measured in shekels. And the way I understand it, and there's very little written about it, there's very, there's no historical case of it that I can think of where this has happened and we can analyze it and see what it was. Um, But it is a person that seems to lack money to be able to serve God, especially with the tithe, I believe, because it's in that context. All right, so he vows to pay a certain amount. That value is set by the colon based on his age, his his, uh, gender, his ability to work, all of those things. So the value goes up or down based on those things. He can try to buy it back once he has paid the vow. In other words, he vows the money, goes away, he earns the money, he pays the vow. He can redeem it back if he wants to, but it costs him another fifth part. Or what's that 20% right Um, all of that was used for the maintenance of the temple and that's the historical information that we have on that chapter is that the proceeds from it and I think it's possible that the proceeds might have been labor Some sort of service in the temple, some sort of, certainly for the house, the house would be dedicated for the koinim to use, or the field would be dedicated to grow food for the koinim. Are you with me? So it's entirely possible that a person could have served in the house, and perhaps one historical place where we might see that is when Hannah gave Shmuel to the prophet, the priest, right? Okay. What's interesting about it is, if you add up all of the, the number of shekels mentioned, so if we take the 50 shekels for a man, age 20 and above, and, and the various numbers, if we add all those up, it's 143. And that just so happens to be equal to the 45 curses that are in Vayikra Leviticus, and the 98 curses that are in Deuteronomy. And if you go further in the Gematria of it, I think Gematria is useful to look at. I don't think we can be certain about things, but it sure is interesting that 143 adds up to 8, ultimately. All right, which is infinity. And that seems to be, in my opinion, sort of the tone of those punishments being threefold more than the blessings, invoking this sense of weight eternity, infinity, is a long, long time. People look at the scriptures and they see the threat of punishment. And they see God as an angry God. Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy whose name starts with a T. Tertullian, I believe, was the first one to basically say that the God of the Old Testament was an angry God. And the God, the new God, Jesus of the New Testament, he's a, he's a sweet God. He's a loving God. He, he would never do anything. And that's, that's people's mindset today. Is that God's not going to hurt you. He's not going punish to you, punish you. He's not mean. That's the Old Testament God. He's mean. New Testament God is, is a sweetie pie. He would never do anything to upset you. He wouldn't scare you. Again, I remember one time when my children were little, and I was trying to uh, get put a sense of urgency in them about the coming of Messiah. Yeah. And we were in a restaurant when I was doing it, in, you know, in our own little private table in a little booth. And a woman made a comment: "He's just trying to scare those kids." Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want my children to fear God. Right. Okay. I do. All right. <laughs> They see the scriptures and they see the warnings in them, but they don't see the beauty of what the warning is trying to accomplish, and that's a repentance that will secure a redemption. Right? And to me, that's beautiful. That's what God's trying to get out of. Yeshua was sent to redeem us from that curse, from that number 143, from an infinite, eternal condemnation where the the promises of the Torah for punishment will be meted out forever. That's a long time. It's a long time. I would rather fight temptation down here than to give in to it. I would rather fight it. I would rather suffer on this earth and be put aside from humanity and be ridiculed like we all are if we're living our faith. I would rather go through that for a brief season here and live in shalom and safety and peace and abundance and prosperity and health and all of those things forever than to deal with eternity apart from God knowing They'd, all I had to do was turn around. Because Amen. Amen. you will know it. If they don't understand the gospel now, they will then. You realize that? Yeah. People that suffer in eternity in in banishment from God will understand why. He's going to make it abundantly clear. He did not come to save us from hell, however. He came to save us from our sins our salvation is now the prophet, in, on, on the flip side of that coin some people think that their salvation is hey I got me a free ticket to heaven yep. mm-hmm. and they go on in their sin matter of fact I submit to you that most people of faith today that's the way they think yeah, they may not say it but that is the way they think I got me a free ticket to heaven God loves me. I can do whatever I want. I'm saved. He came to save us from our sins. Our sins are the things that we do, plain and simply, that God said not to do. The result of sin is the curse of the Torah. And of course, our Christian brothers and friends, they think that the Torah itself is a curse because they take one verse... And they read it completely wrong. But because they've heard it that way all their lives, every time they read it, they believe it the same way. They're not reading judiciously the Word of God to understand the Word of God. They're reading it to perpetuate what they, what mommy and daddy told them. Or what someone else told them that made them feel good. Of course, I'm talking about Galatians 3.13. Mashiach has redeemed us from the curse in the Torah, by becoming accursed for our sakes, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the nations through Yeshua HaMashiach, that we might receive the promise of Harulah through absolute trust. Seems like a simple verse, but the way it gets translated is, See? The curse of the Torah. And they think that means that the Torah is a curse. I'm going to read that sentence again. Now, let me back up a little bit. Why does someone hang on the tree? Shaul is quoting the Torah here, and he says, Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. If you go to the scriptures that Paul is quoting and read why someone hangs on a tree, this is what it says. And if a man has committed a sin, worthy of death, We learned that there are sins that are not worthy of death. There was no punishment. You know, if you eat kosher food, you're not going to get stoned. You're going to bathe and wait. Right? If you don't eat kosher food, if you eat unkosher food. Right? All right. So if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. That's what Yeshua was doing, was hanging on a tree. He was hanging on a tree and they took his body down not to fulfill this command. They took it down to observe their Sabbath, which wasn't even a Sabbath. But God wouldn't allow Yeshua to hang there because he was cursed with all of our sins. Every sin that every man has ever committed was heaped into the body and soul of Yeshua at that hour. That's what it means. It is breaking the Torah that causes people to hang on a tree. It is breaking the Torah that brings the curse. It's not the Torah itself. That's the curse of the Torah. The subject of that sentence It's curse, not Torah. It's basic grammar. Whether you read it in our translation or any other translation, the subject of the sentence is curse. We could read it this way from our translation Mashiach has redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for our sakes, and it would be sufficient, wouldn't it? (laughs) Shoal inserted a phrase, a prepositional phrase that indicates possession of the Torah, he inserted it to clarify that there was a specific curse that he was talking about. And it's what we read, or would have read, in Vayikra 26, and it's what you would read in Devarim chapter 16, 17, and 18, I think, somewhere along in there. The curses that are in the Torah for breaking the Torah. You can read that same sentence this way from other Bibles. And it would be the exact same thing. Christ has redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for our sins. Mashiach and Christ are the same thing. I think there's a little bit of betterness to Mashiach than the Greek source. But nonetheless, curse is the subject. He's redeemed us from the curse. Not from the Torah itself, but from the curse pronounced in it. He adds a descriptor, the source of the thing that possesses the curse, so that we have, we know it's not arbitrary. Each of us has committed and probably, sometimes, sadly, still commits sins that lead to death, at least in our mind. Anybody? But Yeshua volunteered to suffer the death penalty for our sakes. And that's how he purchased us back from sin. That's what it means when I said that he came to redeem us from our sins, to save us from our sins. Mattai, Matthew chapter one, O Yosef, this is the messenger, the angel talking to Joseph. O Yosef ben Aviv, do not be afraid to take your wife Miriam, because he that is to be born of her is of the Ruach HaKodesh she will give birth to a son and you will call his name Yeshua for he will save his people from their sins salvation is now it's every day he rescues you from your own sin every single day if he died for our sins, which were were blotted out, then that means that our sins were written down before we were born, all of them, from day one to dead day yeah. Right? Yeah. And he died for them. They are dealt with. I think that's something we need to lock in our mind. And I think the Messianic community thinks that there's some limit to that. I think that there I have heard. People in the Messianic community say that he died for everything up to the day that you recognize that the Torah teaches you about sin. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then if you sin after that, you're you're going to hell. Uh-huh. Hell's going to be, uh, heaven's going to be an empty spot. Yeah, 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 yeah. If yeah, that's yeah. the case. Well, completely empty. Yeah. And there'll be none, nobody up there but God and Yeshua. Mm-hmm. came to redeem us back from sin, to purchase us out from under sin. The slavery, the mitzrayim, the double trouble of sin. If we remain in our sins, we perish. If we trust in Yeshua, we are saved from our sins. And I've been telling you for the last I know at least last Shabbat and last night that the power of God is a life redeemed out from under sin. That's the power of God. That's what causes heaven to rejoice. Heaven, when God does a miracle on earth, heaven is like, They saw creation. The messengers did. Uh, you know, healing one little boo boo on somebody, again, it's child's play. But when a human being recognizes and is contrite over his own sin and turns to God and says, Help me, I want to be free of this. That's when a, heaven rejoices. I mentioned on Thursday night that I feel like I'm pushing a boulder uphill sometimes and trying to get people to see the simplicity of the gospel and to turn from their sin. It's a big job, and it's, in my estimation, there's very few people actually doing that these days, including, and especially sometimes, religious people. They don't think they need to repent of anything. Some of them, like I said, think they're perfect. And they're done. And they can't do any wrong. The parable that Yeshua spoke when he said, I say to you that such will be the joy over the malachim of Elohim, over one sinner who repents. It was spoken. in regard to a shepherd leading his flock to go and fetch one lost sheep. That sheep wandered away from the safety of the Torah. Remember what I said? The Torah, God told us that the, the, the commandments would be our safety. our Remember all that stuff, right? So that sheep himself wandered away from there. From that safety. Abundance. Shalom. Victory fruitfulness, cared for, God among you, free. That's the picture of the covenant. That's what the Torah, that's the picture that the Torah paints. It's beautiful. But if you break the covenant like that sheep did, sneak out from under the fence, then the curse is upon you. And that's why Yeshua fetches you. Because every one of us had broken it. And Yeshua regardless of what people think, is pursuing every human being on earth. We think of that parable and we think only about me. I'm so special. Yeshua came after me. I personally believe he's pursuing every human being. It is not the will of God that any should perish, but that everyone returns. When we turn, we strive not to violate his means, but we're going to violate some of them because we are human beings, and that's why I said we need Yeshua every day. we only think that we believe and we sin willfully, then there may have never been any true repentance in the first place. And I honestly believe there's a lot of people that, that call themselves believers in Messiah of whatever ilk and they don't understand it. They've never come to a point where they said, I did that. I am the reason and I am this way. I am the sinner. I am the one who is violated God's commands uh, it was necessary for Yeshua to die for me. But there are those who have truly repented and yet still willfully sin. Or if that, if that were not so, there are people who don't think that anybody can be truly saved and then willfully sin. If that were the case, where if you get saved and then you don't have to ever worry about willful sin again, then why was the book of Hebrews written? Why did Paul say, for if any man sins willfully, after he has received the knowledge of the truth, then there is no more sacrifice to be offered for sins, but only impending fearful judgment and a fiery indignation which will consume the adversary. He who transgressed the Torah of Moshe on the word of two or three witnesses, he died without mercy. How much more punishment do you think he will receive who has trodden underfoot the Son of God? Trodden underfoot. That means heard about it, received the truth. That's, those are the things we've heard so far, right? ...and has considered the blood of his covenant through which he had been, past tense, consecrated. This person who is willfully sinning has been consecrated. He has received of the Ruach of He goes on and says that, ...as ordinary blood and has blasphemed the Ruach of compassion, the Spirit... The breath of God, the, the, the communication of God's compassion, you've received it. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, Yahweh shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living Elohim. So I think there's a lot of people out there who think they are believers, and they know they're being willfully sinful, and they're thinking, I'm going to hell anyway, I'm done. I submit to you, they were never at a true state of repentance. I think that's where a lot of people who grew up in house, households of faith are. They think that because they grew up in that house that they understood everything mom and dad taught them. And so they think that they did have a true confession, but they never really took to account their own sin. I think that's why they're in the state they're in and why they were making rebellious. You with me? Yeah. If we trust in Yeshua, we are free from feeding with the pigs. And that's what I mean, sin. You can get along in it for a little while. Somebody, I think it was, I don't remember if it was Paul or Yeshua. I would have to think about it for a minute. It was either Yeshua or Paul, but somebody said, well, one or one of the other. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Yes, yes. You know, it's pleasant. We enjoy it. That's why we do it. It's Friday, man. It's fun. Whatever the sin is, we get something out of it that feeds our flesh. Our Greek portion contained the mashal, the parable of the prodigal son. That son cashes in his his inheritance and goes off into the world. He's similar to the sheep leaving the fold in a previous mashal. Yeshua said he wasted his wealth in extravagant living. So I think that's a very small phrase that describes what I just said about people who grew up in a household of faith. Do what they had, didn't want it. In the prodigal story, he took what was given to him by his father and used it for vanity. He fed his flesh. That's always wrong. God gave us gullets with which to drink, but he didn't mean for us to be drunk. God gave us lips to imbibe with, but he didn't mean for us to eat unkosher foods and junk food all the time he gives us parts to procreate with but he doesn't mean for us to just share that with anybody and everybody he gives us those things and all of us at some point in some form or fashion go about to use those sacred things for venting, for feeding ourselves for momentary satisfaction. Even if that momentary satisfaction is doing that same thing over and over and over and over and over. Every single time it's just a momentary satisfaction. You're always going to be hungry again for the next hit. That's how Satan traps us. And some people might only be thinking of chemical things. But it's so much more than that. It's the way you talk about another person in a negative light. Some people feed on that. They've got to be talking to somebody about whatever what's wrong with everybody else. And they can't stop. They don't know why. That ain't no different than that drunk person over there who's taking that alcohol and can't stop. You don't know why. It's still sin. It's enslaving us to the deceit that it's okay. That momentary slice of happiness makes us think it's got to be okay, it makes me happy. But you have to do that same thing over and over and over again. To, to, to I think there's some chemical stuff going on in the brain that gives you that elation, It keeps you in it. All it's in, all it's doing is enslaving us to the need for the next hit whatever it is, affection from another person getting high from a drug, ecstasy from some form of physical contact drunkenness, you name it all of it, it's the same thing and at that point the sin becomes necessary in order to forget the consequences of the sin and that's where that guy gets when he's at the pig trough. that's what the pig trough is A lot of people are mad at God or at church or at religious people. They're in that state because they go out from under the fold and they feed their flesh because you can't help but do that if you're not hearing the word of God on a regular basis. You can't help it. You're going to feed your flesh. They stay mad at God and that feeds their flesh. They stay mad at religious people and that feeds their flesh. They need to hear the truth of his compassion, I believe, for the first time. I think people in that state, even though know, they know God, they've heard him all their lives, they haven't yet truly repented and turned to God personally. And that's what we need, we need to be praying for. When you're praying for your loved ones who you think are lost and you're scared they violated Hebrews 10, I submit to you they probably haven't. Probably never knew it. The prodigal son got to the point of eating with the pigs. He says he craved to fill his stomach with the husk of the swine breed. That's symbolic of uncleanness, sinfulness. And yet no man would give him it. When he came to himself, what am I doing? Said, how many hired workers are there in my father's house who have plenty of bread, and I'm here perishing with hunger? How many messengers in heaven are there who bask in the presence of God? And I'm one of his children. And I'm sitting here in the squalor of earth. I'll rise and go to my father, and say to him, My father, I have sinned before heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired workers. He rose up and came to his father. And that's what we're praying for, for our loved ones. That they rise up and come to their father, not daddy. Daddy. That's the power of God that I'm praying for, for this congregation. First of all, that if any of us in here are still... Dealing with sins that are easily besetting us. We conquer that. And that we be able to hand that victory off to those loved ones that we're praying for. They see it. Without us having to say a word, they see it. It's a Victory. the father of the prodigal son kills a fatted calf, he puts a ring of authority on him, a robe of representation in other words, this is my son and that he has returned and he rejoices that's on the heels of the passage of the one lost sheep that was found the lost sheep accidentally wandered it's similar to the prodigal son but the prodigal son did it with intent. intentionally left. He knew what he was doing. That one has to see the glory of his father's house and the congregation. I will go to my father's house where even the servants eat well. That's the person who has turned from his religion. Are you with me? If the congregation is not behaving gloriously, they're never going to see it. She just had to see the shepherd. Yeah. You catching what I'm driving at? There are people out there who grew up, believe it or not, in America. I don't see how, but in America, people today, I promise you, are growing up never having heard of this. They go to church. And they've never heard of it. They've never heard the description of what salvation is. They sit in church every Sunday and never hear it. All they hear is, Oh, Jesus loves me. And the gospel has never been communicated to them. And they think they're Christians. That's a lost sheep, in my opinion. That's a sheep who's who's been stolen and put in a bad kennel, a bad (laughs) corral, with a wolf. In either case, however, in both parables rejoicing happens when the problem is solved. That's what redemption is. We have a prophetic picture in our portion in the last of it, what we read from the Torah this morning of that redemption. And it says, and all the tenth part, all of the tithe of the herd or the flock all of the tenth part of the herd of the flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be kodesh unto Yahweh. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad. Neither shall he change it. And if he changes it at all, then both it and that for which it is changed shall be kodesh. It shall not be redeemed. So what is what this is talking about is you bring your sheep in. This is done on Yom Teruah. Bring all the offered sheep in. In order to decide what they're going to offer, they run them through a little gate. And they tap each one. They have a rod, a shed. They take that and dip it in Shani Tolahat, the scarlet of the Tolahat. They dip it in that scarlet. And when the tenth one comes out, they tap it. It puts a red stain on the back of that white sheep. 10 more, 9 more come out, the 10th one comes out, they tap it. This is how the flock is selected for Yom Teruah, the offerings for Yom Teruah are selected. I think it's a picture of the remnant. All of it was tithed. Are you with me? But only 10%, one of every 10, is selected to go into the temple being offered the Mishnah explains that that's Yom Teruah well. it says every, every each one that passes under the the staff the rod and that most of you know this Bereshit Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 you The staff, the rod, shall not depart from Judah. It's the same word. I personally believe that that priest standing there picking the sacrifices is a picture of Yeshua selecting his rod. Figuratively, does everybody understand that? It's a figurative thing. We ourselves are supposed to be offerings. We are all supposed to be set apart. We are all supposed to be the tenth part offered to God. Every believer, right? But not every believer. Every believer becomes consecrated in the tithe. I'm extending the analogy. Is everyone with me? Every believer is part of the tithe, but not every believer offers himself. That's why Sheol says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of Elohim. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Then you present your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated and acceptable to Elohim by means of reasonable service. That's what sacrifice to God is. That's how you become in his kingdom is by serving him in some capacity (laughs) and sitting where I sit, even if that means all you ever do is sit here, you're here so I ain't wondering about you (laughs) you know what I mean and I do, I, you know, I was thinking earlier, I, I, when people are not here, I think of them and I miss them, and it's not a selfish thing, I don't care about heinies in the seats. It's like, where are they? Yeah. Okay. And I don't have time to call every, everyone, and, and maybe I should take that time every single time, but there's more people in here, y'all are noticing who's not here, right? I want them to know that we want them and that's all which happens on Yom Teruah is a very small number and I do not believe it's every believer I think it's a small number and I think it's it's built of people who actively serve their Messiah, who actively pursue righteousness, who actively want to participate in the kingdom that to me is who will be caught up on that day because everyone else in my opinion is asleep Go to the parable of the ten virgins. It's a very similar idea. All of them were virgins. Only five had their lambs children. And of course, that, that is done by, the, by obeying the mitzvot. But the mitzvot don't save you, they simply prove that you belong to him and you want to see him. It's a very small number. I got to thinking about it. 10% of 10% is that number of the sheep with the red dots, right? There's 2 billion people in the world. And if I did the math right, I don't know if I got the right number of zeros on here or not. It's very quickly done. Mark probably correct me if I'm wrong. 2.2 billion, I rounded it down to 2 billion people who say they're Christians in the world. And then if you add Messianics, that's another 300,000, but that's, they don't have the statistics on that today, because that's just Jews and Gentiles who worship in Messianic congregations. That number has grown because of all those offshoots. You know what I mean? So, it's close enough, though. Two and a half million, so that's two and a half billion. Small number is and you reduce it down, it would be 20 billion. That's small. And that is if all of those two and a half billion plus are actually believers. Right. Yeah. And I submit to you most of them probably are not. We see another picture of this in our Hotara portion you throne of glory, the one enthroned in glory. On high from the beginning, you, place of our mikdash, our sanctuary. You, O mikvah of Yisrael. Most translations say hope of Israel, and hope is in the same root word, but this actually says mikvah, immersion pool of Yisrael. All that forsake you shall be ashamed. They that depart from me, there's that double entendre, if that's the right word. There's that play, you and me, right? All that forsake you, you enthroned on glory. All that forsake me, they that depart from me, this is Yeshua's people. shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken Yahweh, the fountain of Mayim height. Heal me, O Yahweh, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Mm-hmm. Most of you in here probably know this, but some don't. Yeshua references that scripture in Yophaniah chapter 7. Now, on Yom HaGadol, that's the last day of the Hav, that's the 8th day of Sukkot. Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever trusts in me, just as the scriptures have said, the rivers of Mayim Chayim shall flow from within him. So Yeshua called himself the fountain of Mayim Hayim in Isaiah. I'm sorry, in Jeremiah, our portion, chapter 17. He called himself Mayim Chaim in Jeremiah, and then in John 7, he calls himself Mayim Chaim. Then the next chapter, we turn around, he goes out to Har Hazatim, and in the morning, he came again to the Hechal, this is Yochanan chapter 8, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the Sofrim and the Peroshim brought a woman who was caught in adultery, and they made her to stand in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has, was caught openly in the act of adultery. Now in the Torah, of Moshe is commanded that women such as these should be stoned for what the youth said. They said, they said this to test him that they might have a cause to accuse him. While Yeshua was bent down, he was riding on the ground. When they were through questioning him, he straightened himself up. So Yeshua, when they started accusing this woman, bent down and was riding in the dirt. When they were done accusing her, he stood up and he said, he who is among you who is without sin, let him first throw a stone at her. And again, he bent down and he rode on the ground. And when they heard it, they left one by one, beginning with the elders, and the woman was left alone in the midst. When Yeshua straightened himself up, he said to the woman, Where are they? Did no man condemn you? And she said, No man, I know. Then Yeshua said, Neither do I condemn you. Go away. And from henceforth, do not sin again. Yes, he forgave her, but he instructed her, don't do it again. Don't commit adultery again. And yet you have so many in churches and congregations committing adultery again and again and again. But I want to back up and show you the the impact of this. They that have forsaken you shall be ashamed. They that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Mm -hmm. I personally believe that Yeshua wrote their names in the dirt before they were done. Oldest to youngest because that's why they left oldest to youngest. That's my opinion. I can't prove it, but it sure looks that way to me. He was riding in the dirt. They didn't even notice it. He stood up and said what he said. Just the day before they had heard him say, I am the fountain of Mayim kind." What a lot of people don't know is for 50 some odd days that's 40 days up to Yom Kippur four more days and eight more days what is that 59 I'm not in the mood for math right now but you get the idea of the Pharisees teaching the people every scripture about living water every Jewish person who heard him yesterday say living water I am the fountain of my Chaim knew that verse those who reject him and turn away from him will be written in the earth. And that woman standing there alone, that's where everybody needs to get with their sin. Stop listening to their accusers. that's hard to do because sometimes the accusers is just the devil between your ears. Anybody? Yeah. And that's not just your mind. That's the enemy. People don't realize that Hasatan is real. Yes, and he gets in your head all the time. And you might have, you know, if you can see it, freak you out and I to me the heaviness of evil in this world is just stark and here I am 40 some odd years into my faith and I'm just now getting to the point where I honestly and truly feel like I don't belong here. I don't want to be The only reason I want to be here is to save people. Not that I can save them, but to push that boulder up the hill a little bit more. I need help. (laughs) Yes, sir. Mm Amen? Amen. Thanks for tuning in to listen to The Drosh for this week's Parsha. In the description, you'll find all the links to our websites and social media content. Please make sure you're subscribed to our podcast as we can be found on all major podcast platforms. If you feel compelled to support this ministry, please feel free to do so by donating via the Get the Word Out link in the description. All proceeds go toward growing this platform and the Mikdash Mayot ministry. Until the next time, we pray God blesses you with shalom in the name of Yahweh Yeshua Mashiach.